Please turn with me to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 7. The sermon passage this morning comes from Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. Following the reading of God's word, we will sing the Gloria Patri, which is printed for you in your bulletin. Please stand to hear God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right, because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. The famous 20th century atheist and philosopher Bertrand Russell was once asked, what would he say to God if he met him when he died? His answer was, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. Today, we are looking at a passage that has everything to do with the evidence of God. One of the things that gets in the way of seeing Jesus and seeing God is our doubts. Our doubts. It's 
comforting to me to know that even the greatest prophets and even the greatest heroes of the faith had doubt. You must do two things in your doubt from this passage. Two things. First, you must consider the evidence about Christ. Second, you must be willing to accept a low position. Examine the evidence, accept a low position, those two things. So first, let's talk about examining the evidence. Now, people usually dismiss evidence about Jesus and about the Bible and about God for personal reasons, but sometimes they make it sound as if it were intellectual or purely scientific reasons that they are offended. So consider verse 23, when Jesus says to John's messengers in verse 23, he says, blessed are those who do not fall away from or on account of me. Now that, those two words, fall away, in the Greek is one word, it's scandalon, which means scandalize. It's really an offense. Blessed are those who are not offended or scandalized by Jesus. But we know, even from Scripture, that there will be plenty who are scandalized. In fact, we even read, we opened up with a verse from 1 Peter, which was quoting Isaiah about a stumbling stone, that the Messiah would be a stumbling block. He would cause offense for many people. I've heard all of the reasons why people offer that they can't believe. The Bible's outdated. The Bible itself is offensive, or science has disproven Christianity, or I don't agree with what the Bible teaches on sexuality, or there can't just be one way to God. All of these things are not only doubts, but ways that people are offended. Now, here's John. Let me give you his, his context, his personal context. He had criticized King Herod for marrying his brother's wife. In response to that criticism, Herod took John and put him in prison in a high fortress near the Dead Sea. It would have been a very dark and lonely, desolate place. This was the context in which John begins to doubt. He asks Jesus a very good question. Are you the one? Now, consider a couple of things John didn't do that are to his credit. In this dark and lonely place, he didn't just give up on Jesus. He didn't say, well, I guess he wasn't the one. No, he came to Jesus with a question. And second, the question is not first about him. I would want to ask Jesus, if you are the one, why am I in prison? Why am I here if you're the Lord? That's what I would want to ask. And I don't think John would have been wrong or sinful to have asked those, that question. But instead, he comes with a less self-focused question. It's not self-focused at all. It's, are you the one? Consider Jesus' response. He quotes Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. We've seen that even in Luke chapter 7, that he raises a widow's son. 
But one thing he leaves out of that quote in Isaiah 35 is verse 4, right before verse 5, is the day of vengeance. When the Messiah comes, there was the expectation of wrath and vengeance. Why does Jesus leave that out when he quotes Isaiah? John certainly would have wondered that. Hold on to that question. Often, what gets in our way, what clouds our vision of Jesus and seeing the evidence, are things that we don't see in the Bible. For example, the Bible doesn't tell us our personal future. It doesn't tell us how long we're going to live. It doesn't tell us whether we're going to have a happy marriage or a bad marriage or even a marriage at all. It doesn't tell us where we're going to have a good job. It doesn't tell us how much we'll get paid. I think those are a lot of the reasons why we have doubts, because those things seem more pressing than who Jesus is and what he did. Those things threaten to take our eyes away from looking at Jesus and considering the evidence. John had a unique role to play. He was the last Old Covenant prophet. It was not a flashy role. It was not a worldly successful role. It was certainly not financially successful. And when Jesus says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind, a man in fine clothes. We can answer that John was not any of those things. He was a man's man. He was not swayed by public opinion. He was not like a reed blowing in the wind. He spoke truth to power and he paid for it. He was in prison. He was definitely not rich, ate locusts and wild honey, not rich or famous, but he had a high calling. In the parallel account in Matthew 11, Jesus says this, that John is the Elijah who is to come. What did he mean? In the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, which in our Bible is the last book of the Old Testament and the last chapter of the last book. And I think this is the second to last verse. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Jesus is saying very clearly here, when he says, this is the one about whom it's written, I will send my messenger ahead of you to prepare the way. He's saying, I am the one who was to come. I am the one the prophets, all the prophets predicted. And you, John, are the Elijah who is to prepare the way. Very clear answer. Phil Riken says this, Speaking of verse 28, Jesus says, Among those born of women, none of them is greater than John. Phil Riken says, The other prophets all looked to the Savior from a distance, but John saw him with his own two eyes. He alone had the privilege of pointing at Jesus and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was a high calling, but it was in fact a low position. Now, we would like a position that allows us to be in fine clothes or living in luxury or with the rich and famous. We don't want to be having a calling that is ordinary or that's lonely or dark or that's simply just faithful, not particularly successful, not particularly noteworthy, just faithful. And in many ways, that was the calling of John, to faithfully proclaim 
to prepare the way for the Messiah, regardless of what people thought about it, regardless of what people think, and to call people to repent, even the king. John was faithful, but he did have a low position. Consider this. Did people want to be like John? No, they didn't. He lived a rough life of poverty. But Elijah, the real Elijah back in the Old Testament, even he, in some ways, got a better worldly position because Elijah was taken away in glory, never died. John is in prison. And we know two chapters later in Luke 9, he will be beheaded. That was John's fate or lot. I shouldn't say fate. That was the lot that God assigned to John. Let me be clear then about what our calling is as Christians in light of John's ministry. Our, our Christian calling is to abide with Jesus. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. We are to be closely united with him in fellowship, in love, in intimate relationship. In fact, we are to be so close to Jesus that Paul would say, I've been crucified with Christ. I think many of us would say, yes, we want to be with Christ, but we would like to be rich with Christ or healthy with Christ or educated with Christ, PhD'd with Christ, successful with Christ, but not necessarily crucified with Christ. John expected, I think, other people to suffer. He expected God to come with a bang. Consider what John was known for. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor. That was part of John's message. He expected vengeance. He expected wrath. He expected God, if the Messiah was to come, he expected he would come with a bang in judgment. Therefore, it's understandable why John would ask Jesus, are you the one? He might be thinking, if you are the one, then why are the Romans still in power? If you are the one, then why are there wicked people doing unjust things and violating your law and covenant? We want God to come with a bang, too, in big ways. But I think the testimony of Scripture is that God's salvation comes in many ways, in stillness or in weakness. It doesn't always come the way we want. And the story of Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, that story confirms that God does not always come with a bang. Consider this. Yes, Elijah called down fire from heaven to Mount Carmel. He slayed the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. But the next chapter in 1 Kings 19... Elijah doubts. Here's why. He says, I've been jealous for God, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, they've thrown down your altars, they've killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek to take my life away. Then God tells him to go stand up on the mountain, Mount Horeb, and it tells us this, that the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. 
What was God communicating? God wasn't in the bang. He was in the still whisper. Psalm 45 is, I think, a great psalm that communicates a similar idea. The mountains are quaking. Everything is raging. There's chaos. And God says, be still and know that I am God. Be still. We would like God to come with a salvation that looks big to us, that fulfills our expectations. Consider this, though, that John had something that is lesser to to a certain extent than we have. Jesus says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Meaning that we have a fuller revelation of who Jesus is. We have more reason to be able to focus on God and focus on Jesus in our suffering and in our doubts. We have more reason, not only fuller revelation, but we see the fullness of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, the pouring out of the Spirit, We have the book of Revelation giving us hope for the future. John had none of those things. Phil Riken says that even the newest, weakest Christian is greater than John. This is because we've experienced the finished work of Jesus Christ, and therefore, by the witness of the Holy Spirit, we know things that John could only dream of knowing. We know the mercy of Jesus in forgiving our sins through the cross. We know the power of Jesus in rising from the dead. We know the full love of Jesus in the free gift of eternal life. So if we have, in many ways, a higher position than than John did, if we have more complete revelation than John had, why do we have doubts? I had a friend in college come to me and said, Ryan, don't be offended, but I have to tell you something. You stink. You smell. And it was an embarrassing thing. It was almost offensive, right? I could have taken offense. But it was a message I needed to hear. And the point I'm trying to make is this. The reason that we get offended, the reason that we often have doubts is that we don't want to accept a low position and hear the still, small voice or soft voice of God speaking in the Word. We would rather Him come to us in some flashy way. Some gifts, and the gospel is a gift. Jesus Christ is a big gift. He is the gift like no other gift. The whole Bible is about this gift. But some gifts are so important that you have to be humbled to receive it. I mean, imagine if you got a gift for a birthday and you opened the package and it was a book about how to shower properly and you ask, well, why did you give me this? And they say, you could really use to read this book. You would think, oh, okay. (laughs) You might be offended, right? Many people are offended. Many people think, they, they read the Bible, and for whatever reason, whether it's because it tells them that they have to repent, it tells them they're not good enough to be before God in, in, their, in their own flesh and blood, or if it tells them that they're living a lifestyle that they don't want to live, all of these things are offensive. They don't want to accept a low position. 
a position that requires us to repent and to come to God and listen to what he's telling us in his word. Consider this, we have two groups here in verse 29 and 30. These two groups, one of them is willing to accept a low position and one of them is not. The first group you have, the tax collectors, the people, when they heard Jesus' words, they acknowledged that God's way was right. They were teachable. They were Gentiles, many of them. Some of them, perhaps, I think. And the Gentiles knew that they had to accept a low position. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in verse 30, they rejected God's purpose for themselves, it says. Why? I think there are at least two reasons. One reason is because they didn't want to repent. Repentance was something that the Gentiles did upon coming into their faith. But I, secondly, I think it's because it would have been unfathomable to them that the Messiah, God's anointed one, would identify himself so closely with his people that he would take on flesh and dwell among them and that he would dine with tax collectors and sinners. I mean, isn't that, isn't that what their complaint is? We talk about Jesus dining with tax collectors and sinners as if it's this wonderful thing, and it is a wonderful thing. It shows his compassion. But for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, this was evidence against Jesus being the Messiah. Certainly in their minds, the Messiah would not identify himself so closely that he would be in the presence of filthy, grubby people. But he was. It really comes out in this nursery rhyme in verse 32 that Jesus quotes, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. He's saying that when John the Baptist came, his reputation was doom and gloom. It was like a funeral dirge every time you listened to him. It was about God's wrath and vengeance, about the need to repent. You know, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The axe is laid at the root of the trees. This was too much, too gloomy for the Pharisees. But when Jesus came, oddly enough, no one today accuses Jesus of being a glutton or a drunkard. That's one thing nobody says that Jesus was. I can't believe in Jesus because he was a drunkard. But the Pharisees had that concern. It's amazing that he was considered to be so worldly. He would identify himself so closely with people who were living a terrible lifestyle that he himself would be rumored, would be alleged to have a problem with alcohol. There's no truth in any of it, of course. But that's how closely, that's how compassionate Jesus was to the people who were on the outskirts. Now, we must, therefore, keep our eyes on the real Jesus, his real compassion, his real tenderness and care for his people and for the lost. Finally, let me leave you with this. We have evidence, not only in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, of people who doubted. In the New Testament, of course, in Matthew 28, right before Jesus gives the Great Commission, even after he was raised, it says that some of his disciples doubted. We know in John chapter 20, I think it's John 20, that Thomas doubts. 
Jesus presents himself to Thomas. He doesn't bang him over the head. He presents himself to Thomas in a very tender way. But in the Old Testament, we know that Job, Job doubted. Ten of his children were taken away. His health was taken away. His livestock was taken away. And he asks the why and the I questions that John doesn't ask here. Job doesn't get the answers that he was necessarily looking for, or he doesn't get direct answers to the why and I questions, but he does get this. He never stops praying, and God comes to Job in a whirlwind. Job says, I've I've seen about you with the eye, I've heard about you with the ear, but now I see you. I retract, I repent in dust and ashes. What do you see there? I think you see that none of us, on the day that we meet God, none of us will be able to say, there's not enough evidence. None of us are going to be able to shake our fist at God and say, there was no evidence of you. And the reason is that their evidence is abundant throughout the Bible, but especially in the New Testament. The evidence is here. During Jesus' earthly ministry, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. But the evidence is most plainly seen on the cross. Because on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, we get the day of vengeance. This is why Jesus did not deal out judgment in his first coming. Is because, this is why he didn't quote Isaiah 35 verse 4. Because he would take on himself the vengeance and the penalty for sin that we deserved. And if you gaze at that long enough, if you pray to him long enough, pray to to God long enough, if you present him with your doubts long enough, and you keep your eyes focused on Jesus, eventually you will have assurance of faith. I'm not going to say that all your doubts will, will go away or that all of your why questions will be answered. But I do think that assurance is possible, not through extraordinary revelation or extraordinary things, but in the still soft voice of God, in the ordinary way, in reading God's word, in praying to him, in having fellowship with other believers, in coming to worship, taking the sacraments. These are things that help us along the journey. We may not have all of the answers we want, but we do have this. We have the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it shows us how much he loves us. It shows us the extent to which he would go to identify with us and to rescue us. I pray that it doesn't offend you. I pray that the news about Jesus doesn't scandalize you, that you don't walk away from God himself because of some small offense. Jesus' love is writ loud on the cross. So consider the cross. Put your doubts and fears at the foot of the cross. He will come back one day with a bang. But do you really want to wait until that day when he comes back to talk to him about your doubts? Do you really want to wait until that day when you die, when God comes back in judgment? To have all of your answers, have all of the questions answered, 
Seek him now while he can be found. Put your inmost thoughts, inmost doubts, your greatest worries at the foot of the cross because Jesus can save to the uttermost all of those who come near. Do it today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you that you did not come through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, with a bang in his first coming. If you had, Lord, none of us would be here. We would have been swallowed up in judgment. We thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist, which was a preparatory ministry. It was to shine the spotlight on Jesus Christ. We pray that all of the things of this life that seem so pressing to us, whether that's job loss, whether that's our health, our relationships, we pray that those things would not take our eyes away from Jesus, that it would not take our eyes away from the evidence. You've given us abundant evidence, not only in creation, but in redemption. We ask forgiveness for where we've failed to meet you, to come to you, where we've failed to look at you and dwell on your word, to meditate on it. And especially we ask forgiveness when we failed to take a low position. Your salvation may not measure up to the salvation we want to have. And we pray, Lord, that you would humble us. And I pray that especially for the people here, for the people I know in my own life, that they would not take offense at your salvation, that Jesus Christ would not be a stumbling stone for them but that he would be a friend of tax collectors and sinners, a friend for people like me and them. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.